As has already been mentioned, what a blessing it is to come together on this Sunday morning, the first day of the week, and to do so with a thrill and joy connected to the Word of God and the service to God by way of a worship that's directed to the honoring of Him. I'd like to add the thoughts earlier about expressing my personal thanks, Denise and I would, to Brother Dennis for taking care of the sermons and the Bible studies the last couple of weeks. I know that they're stirring and profound and so encouraging. The Word of God's always so direct and answers the greatest needs of our life. Thankful to be back today, Denise and I are, and thankful to be able to worship with you, our, our Christian family. Today we come to a lesson in which we continue our discussion of the fundamentals. You may recall that back in January of this year, we took the opportunity to begin a series of lessons in which we would give one Sunday a month to a particular focus on one of the matters of the fundamentals of the faith. I say that because it's a very important concept, isn't it? The fundamentals of the faith are those matters which are basic, and one might call them elementary, but to understand them is needed. If we have not a full appreciation of those fundamentals, we'll never grasp the loftier and more abstract matters connected to the service of Jesus Christ our Lord. In fact, throughout this year, we began by noting God is. There is a God in heaven. Some people in the world deny that. We learn God does exist. In February, we noticed Jesus Christ lived on this planet. He is not a figment of somebody's imagination. No historian made Him up. He lived and walked on this planet, and this is His gospel. And we'd better obey it. Lesson number three in March. We turned our attention to the Bible. What is this book, and how should it be viewed? We found it is the single, authoritative, inspired, inerrant Word of God. There is no human equivalent. There is no other book that occupies a similar place. This book and it alone has the words that lead to heaven. In April, we gave attention to the plan of salvation. One of the things contained in that book is that people without Jesus are lost. Sometimes we in the human family like to look over that thought. Well, he or she's a nice person. I like working with them. And they're helpful to me, but the fact is, without Christ, they're lost. You and I must never forget that, because we can choose to walk away from Christ ourselves. Today, we come to the fifth installment. What about the church? What about the church? And so today, I've chosen to divide this lesson into three sections, or at least three considerations. One of which, let's devote a few moments to reflecting on the nature of the church. And then, let's look very briefly at some characteristics of the church. And then let's close the lesson with a question. A question that's very timely. A question that is very appropriate because there are many ways in which we see it and perhaps encounter it on a rather frequent basis. And so first, what about the nature of the church? Now, we'll be looking at a number of passages of Scripture over the next few moments just as a reminder to let the Bible speak for itself. It is not our goal to merely state what some person or scholar or other group of people may have said. What is the nature of the church? And let me begin that with this question. What might be said about a person who has obeyed the gospel? 
Now, you and I know many things might be said. Well, the person's wet. He was dry a while ago. Is that all we can say? Is there any more to it than this? May I ask each of us to think with clarity and with a note, a vision based on the Word of God. First of all, I've listed a few things for your consideration. First, that individual that's obeyed the gospel has his or her sins forgiven. They went into that watery grave covered in sin. They come out without any. And the water by itself, of course, is not what washed it away. We know that by faith, in connection to what one relates to in that baptism, it's the blood of Christ that washes those sins away. Wasn't it Ananias who to Paul in Acts twenty two sixteen said, Arise, why tarriest thou? Be baptized and wash away thy sins. It's in baptism those sins are washed away. And thus, whatever things might have been done, whatever words might have been spoken, things that were you see not right in the sight of God, they have been forgiven. May I also add to that the fact that this person who has obeyed the gospel, it might also be said, this person has his or her name written somewhere. Now be advised, it's not that the elders here wrote it somewhere, although they may have. They may be keeping a record, you see, of those that are members of the congregation. And as they keep track of that, because they're dutiful servants watching over the souls of those people, a far greater note is the fact Jesus Christ has written that person's name somewhere. And it's the book of life. The Word of God mentions on several occasions this special and precious book a book in which are written the names of those that are saved. Oh, don't we want our name in that book? Isn't it true you and I, above all things else, would wish our name to be written in that book? Revelation 20.15 will be so specific as to say that all whose names are not in that book are cast into a lake of fire. Who would want that? We know the kind of fire there that's being described, and we understand the fate of those who are cast there. You and I, with joy, lovingly reflect on that day when our name was written in that book. It's when we obeyed the gospel. Now, so far as we've discussed what might be said about a person who's obeyed the gospel, let's try yet a third one. I've asked you to consider this. That person now enjoys a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the very point Paul made in Romans eleven twenty seven when he spoke about the fact we are now enjoying or living in a covenant through the nature of the Christ. Do you notice some things different? The person entered the water covered in sin, named not in the book of life and not in covenant with God, and yet... As a result of faith and the reality of obedience to that gospel, look at what has changed. Maybe it is in sweetness. We can now add this. That person is now a member of a very, very special family. It's the family of God. That family addressed and spoken of in so many ways in the Word of God. Paul put it like this in Galatians 3, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Those who have obeyed the gospel in faith 
are such that those individuals are now members of a very unique and wonderful family. God is the Father, Jesus Christ the elder brother, and in so doing a host of precious souls who would wish to consider the faithfulness and the movement in ways that are right. As we come near to the bottom of that slide, that now brings us to the church. Tell me about this family. It's the church. The church, you see, is this family of God. It's the sphere of the saved. Those people whose names are in the book of life, where are they? They're in the church. You don't find them outside it. Is it not true then the very word church has much to say about this idea? That word that you and I see written so often in English, C-H-U-R-C-H in our New Testament. The original Greek word, ekklesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. Now that's the way it would look to you and me in English, but of course in Greek it'd be pronounced in a way somewhat like the way you and I would say ekklesia. What does it mean? It means this. It's made, you see, of components of two things. The last part of that word, K-L-E-S-I-S, is the root word klesis. It means to be called when used as a verb. When used as a noun, it means a calling. And so clearly, in the word ekklesia, we see something relates to being called. The first two letters, E-K, is a preposition, I should say, and a leading portion of that word that means out of. And so to put those two together, the church identifies a group of people called out of one environment into another for a particular purpose. The church, those called out of the world into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's who they are. Oh, how special and sweet and notable is the nature of that church. As you can see as we close that slide, didn't our Lord make a definitive statement on this point? It's the one Brother Wayne read earlier from Matthew 16. You recall the scene. Jesus had asked His apostles, Whom do men say that I am? Might you and I be impressed? They said, Some say you're Elijah, some Jeremiah, some John the Baptist or one of the prophets. When people who didn't know exactly who Jesus was, or at least were unwilling to say, they likened Him to one of the prophets. They likened Him to John the Baptist. They likened Him to Elijah. All of those powerful, forceful, notable men who were servants of the God of heaven. But of course, those answers weren't satisfactory. He then said, Who do you say that I am? You and I should put ourselves in that very position. As the Lord asks of me and of you, who do you say that I am? Peter, often as one who served as a spokesman, or at least in boldness, he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what a confession it was. In response, Jesus said, I say unto thee, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven... And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
That amazing confession that Peter had made, Jesus said, I'll build my church on it. The fact that the Lord's the Christ, the Messiah. Now that particular thought echoes in your thinking and in mine today as it reminds us then that the gates of hell, even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. In Daniel 2.44, the days of the long ago, Daniel had prophesied, as God revealed it to him, that once established, the church would never cease to be. I hope you and I never cease to be amazed by that. Kingdoms of men rise and fall. They come and they go. The greatest empires the world has ever known, ancient Rome, ancient Babylon, ancient Greece, they're no longer here. As great as they were in their heyday, they've crumbled into the dustbin of history, and the church lives on. And it always will. I hope you and I at least initially appreciate the fact the church then is an amazingly special organization of the saved. Having highlighted some of these issues, what about those characteristics to which I mentioned and alluded earlier? Although many of them might be listed, let's be somewhat brief as we note just a few in passing because they'll be important as we come to a question in just a moment. First, the church is a critical part in the eternal plan of God for the salvation of mankind. May I repeat at least part of that. The church is the critical part in God's eternal plan for the redemptive salvation of the human family. Now, as we develop that thought, we all understand that human beings are immortal spirits. We aren't like animals. We are immortal spirits, meaning we shall never die. Oh, we'll depart this planet at some point, but we're going to live on somewhere. We need to be saved. And the church is the place you have to be in order to find a pleasant place after this life is over. If my name's not in the book of life, if yours isn't in the book of life, then when I depart this planet, it's going to be worse than miserable. It'll be worse than torment. It'll be worse than awful. And the Bible reveals all of that to us in great detail. We need to have the conviction to believe what it says. It is in that light. We find, as you look at the top of that slide, this eternal plan of God. God loves you and me. He wants you and me to go to heaven. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He does let us make the choice. If I want to go to hell, He'll be happy to let me go there. And the same is true of you. But He doesn't want anybody to be lost. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, Very carefully, God would have all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. It is in that connection we can begin to see how special the church is. God would wish every human being on earth to be a member of the church. That's what He wants. That's what He wants. That's what the Lord died for. With that as a background and a mind, look at Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. In the heart of that Ephesian letter, Paul in majesty wrote these unforgettable words to the intent that now 
unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus. You noticed it with me. He said eternal purpose. God has planned this even before this world was ever created. God knew what was going to happen and He wanted a mechanism, a body whereby people could be saved. You'll notice in that thought, it leads us then to appreciate this. That nature of the church is highlighted even in prophecies from the Old Testament. Jeremiah spoke of it. We remember so sweetly how that David learned of it in 2 Samuel 11, or chapter number 7. But perhaps it's in that light how wonderful it is to contemplate the kingdom. The church is God's kingdom. We noted that earlier in the reading of Matthew 16, but we could add to that, that amazing teaching in Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 29. The church is a kingdom. May we never forget that beautiful truth. To say the church is a kingdom is to also add to that thought this. The church is the body of Christ. I know that we observed earlier in Galatians 3 how that one becomes a member of that body when you obey the gospel. And if that's the time where your name is placed in the book of life, and that's the placement in which the saved exist, and the excitement and the joy that goes with that and the promise that comes with it is truly fantastic. Christ's body. Jesus is the head of the church, of course. It's fair to say that that one body, Ephesians 4.4, is a place you and I must be if we're then to be saved. As you look at one last thing on that slide, Jesus, of course, is the head of the church. That means He directs it. He indicates what is to be done and what is not to be done. He provides the legislation, the teaching, the doctrine. And we thrillingly follow Him in faith because He is our Lord. But having noted that, doesn't that easily mean the church was established at a definitive place and at a definitive time? You and I read about that in Acts chapter 2, and it never ceases to be a thrilling record of the establishment of the greatest institution the world has ever known, the church of our Lord. All of these things we've noted so far, both the nature and the characteristics, perhaps prepare us for a question. A question that each of us needs to wrestle with in light of the Word of God. And the question is the one I have at the top of that slide, and I ask it of each of us because the world often asks it, at least indirectly. There are times it asks it rather directly, I must confess, but here's the issue. Is the church obsolete? Before we develop some thoughts about that question and the notion of the Word of God with respect to it, would you just take a moment in your mind and think, is the church obsolete? And I'll in part motivate that by appreciating this. You and I are rather accustomed to things becoming obsolete. That is to say, it serves a purpose for a while, but then something better comes along. Something more sufficient, more efficient, more convenient, and something that will do the job more satisfactorily. On the slide, I've mentioned one example. Gordon Moore, who was the 
CEO of the Intel Computer Corporation. We all know about Intel. You know, it makes computer chips. In 1965, long before you and I ever had a computer in our house, long before there was any cell phones or anything like it, Intel already existed, and at that time, transistors and computer chips were just used for certain things in national labs or government-related industry and so forth. But even at that time, there was enough history in place for Gordon Moore to say that every two years, the number of computer chips on a transistor will double. And that means roughly every few years, computers are going to become obsolete and a new one will be needed. Hasn't that been the case? If you have a computer from 1996 in your basement or your attic or your closet, pull it out and turn it on. See how well it'll work. It won't communicate with today's operating systems. It won't communicate certainly with the technology of today's Internet. By and large, it will be virtually worthless. Try one from 2005. That's only 17 years ago. Try one from 2015. That's only seven years ago. You're likely to find the same thing. Every two years, roughly, the number of transistors on a computer chip will double. That means software has to change. The hardware that upholds it and maintains it has to change. If computers become obsolete, what about the church? Wouldn't you agree with me that there was a time when the church was perceived in a community as essential? There was a time 200 years ago when by and large the educational work in a community was done by the church. The book that was used by and large for students to learn to read was this one. You didn't read about Tom and Dick and Jane, you read from the Bible. And so the church quite often was the very place the church building is where people met for education. We all know that, especially in this community. The little church buildings in Putnam and Jackson County, that's where school met a few decades ago. Doesn't meet there anymore. Now you see, we let our government take care of the education. So we have elementary school, middle schools, and high schools, and we have, of course, all kinds of educational institutions unconnected to the church. And there was a time in a community, the church, you see, was that place where a special benevolence was. There wasn't welfare and government programs to take care of it. The church did it. And so if a family was in need, there was a provision from that congregation of which they were a member to ensure that their needs were met. And that's not so much needed anymore. Now we have welfare programs and a whole host of government services that take care of that question, is the church obsolete? You'll notice about the middle of that slide, there's one article that I read in an attempt to prepare for this lesson in which the person directly said, and I quote the following four adjectives, the church is outdated, obsolete, ignorant, and oppressive. And the person was even thankful that the church no longer held the place in society that it once did. How do you and I feel? Is the Pippin Church of Christ obsolete? Would it make any difference at all if it ceased to exist in this community?
any difference at all in the lives of anybody. It's something to consider. It's easy to see based on those earlier remarks we made, the church had better not be obsolete to you and me. We can't go to heaven without it. Salvation is impossible without the church. As you can tell, all of these comments I've made are a perspective of worldly things. It's true that we have now given our education over, by and large, to other government opportunities, and we've taken care of benevolence with all these government services and programs, and sometimes even local ones at that. But I might say the question is still very relevant to you and to me. Is the church obsolete? Have we replaced the church in our life with something else? Other things? I will simply suggest to you that our children in particular are going to be facing a heavy challenge in the years ahead because this mindset is growing by leaps and bounds. The vast majority of people don't think the church is necessary. You're probably aware that recent statistics easily tell us this. By far, the greatest percentage growth in people in this country religiously are those who have no religion. When they fill out the questionnaire, those who make no pretense of any connection to any religious affiliation of any kind, they just don't believe in religion. That group is growing by far the fastest. And clearly to them, the church is obsolete. It's unnecessary, it's unimportant, and certainly we can do without it. They're the ones that are going to be in government positions in a few years. Many of them are already there. They're the ones that are going to be legislating and making decisions. Many of them are already there. So as the next generation and those that follow it come, we need to make sure that we highlight the truth. The church must never be allowed to be obsolete. Because according to the Bible, it can never be. And so this last slide is this. May I invite each of us then to consider some things. We know it's easy for life to get busy, filled with various obligations and responsibilities, things to be done, and it seems that list never shortens. But may we never allow anything to replace the nature of the church, to uphold it, to pray for it, to be responsive to it, to be here at all of her services, because that's what the Lord wants, to illustrate how important it is to us. Nothing else can replace it. Not watching a television, not viewing a computer, a cell phone, or even just a quiet reading of the Bible at the house, that's not the same as being here with my brothers and sisters in the congregation known as the church. The church is not obsolete, nor shall it ever be, though culture, quite frankly, asserts that it is. For you and me to avoid going to hell, we've got to understand the church is not obsolete. May we love it, cherish it, appreciate it for what the Lord established it to be. And so we thrill at the thought of the church. The greatest thing that you and I can say is not that I'm a Bible or put your last name in place, but that I am a member of the Lord's church. If you and I can say that, 
and say that with the appreciation of the faithfulness that goes with it, that's the grandest statement that might in fact be made. As you and I close this particular lesson today, we've looked at this fundamental connected to the church. Jesus Christ died that the church might be established. Doesn't that remind us of, from yet another perspective of just how grand and special the church is? As we close this lesson, why don't we then give some thought to that text wherein that point is made in Acts 20 verse 28. As Paul spoke to the church, that is to say the elders of the church, he said to them, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, listen, which he hath purchased with his own blood. I hope you and I can picture Jesus on the cross with blood dripping down His side and off, off His legs onto the ground beneath. That blood purchased the church. Doesn't that indicate how important it is? If the church wasn't important, surely God wouldn't have let His Son die like that. Surely God wouldn't have allowed His Son to be tortured that way. And yet, the death of the Master in that way purchased the church. That blood did it. Are you a member of the church today? Are you faithful? I hope that as you and I reflect upon the nature of the church, we will be motivated to serve as a faithful New Testament Christian. It may be that today we could assist someone in your response to becoming a Christian. Remember, the idea behind this is not left to you and me. The Lord Himself said, you've got to believe in Him. You've got to repent of your sins. You're required to make confession of His name and to be baptized for the remission of your sins. And today, we'd be delighted to assist you in that. If you have known that way of life, you knew what it was like to be a faithful part of the church, but you've chosen to walk away from it. You've chosen to live in another way. You realize that other way is an erroneous way, and your name has been taken out of that book of life. Revelation 3 tells us that that pencil that the Lord uses does have an eraser. Names can be removed from that, and how tragic it is to contemplate having your name taken out of that book. May I suggest if it's been taken out, you can have it put back in it. What's required is you come back to your first love. Revelation 2 verse 5. You repent of the sins in your life. You make confession of them. Acts 8 verses 20 and following. And the Lord will in delight put your name back in that book. Today, we would wish to be of help in whatever way we can. This song of encouragement has been selected and chosen. If we could be of assistance at this time, we invite you to come. All together, we stand and sing.